Well, my name is Doug, one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be able to be with you this morning and um, look at John chapter 21 together. Uh, we're in a series kind of following Easter where we're looking at the resurrection, and basically what we're considering is we're holding up our life, we're considering different aspects of our life, sort of different slices of our life, and we're kind of holding them underneath the light of the resurrection. And basically what we're asking is, what does the resurrection have to say about this part of my life? Okay, so... Specifically this Sunday in John 21, we're going to be thinking specifically about what, how the resurrection gives shape and meaning and direction to how we are to serve as Christians. How we are to serve as Christians, okay? Um, I will say, guys, I don't think it's already been said, is if you're a kid and you want to go to Sunday school, you still have a chance to do that, okay? So just, you're dismissed. Most of them, I think, made their way out. So before we look at John 21, would you, I just invite you to pray with me real quick, okay? Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And, uh, Lord, we just pray that uh, as we consider it this morning, Lord, that you would help us to just see real clearly what it is that you're trying to tell us and what you have um, called us to be as your people. Um, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship. And I uh, just pray that you would take this word, which we know is eternal and is true, and we just ask that you would write it on our hearts. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I was in college. Uh, one of my all-time favorite professors was a man by the name of... Uh, Dr. Kenneth Kuntz. And Dr. Kenneth Kuntz was a professor in the Department of Religious Studies here at the University of Iowa, and he was a follower of Jesus, which made him unique um, to be serving in that department and a Christian. was was unique. Uh, I had him in my last semester at the university, and the course that he taught me was biblical archaeology. I believe he's retired now, and he taught, by the time I took this class, it was towards the end of his career. Uh, but just a wonderful, wonderful man. And two things that stood out to me about Dr. Kuntz is, first and foremost, is he was just a very kind man. Just sitting in his classroom was a joy. Um, it, it was a night class, and there was a, it was a smaller class, but he was so kind and forgiving, and just a wonderful teacher. He had a man of wonderful knowledge and experience and uh, was a really skilled teacher, but what stood out to me sitting in his classroom was how kind he was of a person, Okay. Um, not just was he kind, but he was also the type of professor who took the time to actually know his students. This was unique. He saw it as his opportunity to get to know and, and, and that he was an effective teacher because he knew his students. Um, so much so that years after, it was probably about 10 years after I, I took his class, I was applying for seminary, and I needed a recommendation, a reference from a college professor. Now, if you're like me, you kind of float through college, and you don't really, at least I didn't, get to know any, many of my professors. Like, I knew who they were, but I highly doubt many of them would remember me. So I was, like, thinking to myself, who am I going to ask to fill out this recommendation form? Who even knows that I exist 10 years later, right? So I thought of, of Dr. Coons. Um, one, because I really enjoyed him. Uh, but two, I thought, okay, you know, he's, he's a follower of Jesus. You'll see this, this recommendation for a seminary, and maybe he will think favorably of me, Okay. Um, and I sent him an email just requesting that he fill this out. And within a day, he responded. And the, the other thing that strikes me about him as I reflect on him was not just his kindness. He was a kind man, but he also knew me. His response to that email some 10 years later. Now, this is an individual who's taught thousands over his career of students. And he was able to recount my name, my face, and what type of student I was in his classroom. And his email, he responded by saying, oh, yes, I remember. And he stated a few things about me. And it just... It blew me away. It floored me that here's this professor that actually knew me some 10 years later. It was really remarkable. As we consider John 21, those two things about Jesus should immediately strike us about the type of Savior that we worship. 
He is a kind and he is a gentle. He is an amazing savior who knows his people. He knows precisely who his people are and what his people need. Just comes off the pages of John chapter 21. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, John 21 reads a little differently. It's a little unique. When you read through the Gospel of John, you get to John 20, and you would think to yourself, oh, that's it. The story's over. It comes, it, John 20 seems like just a natural place to end. You have several appearances of the resurrected Christ. He appears himself to, reveals himself to his disciples. Thomas, if you remember the story, is not with them. Finds out at a later time that Jesus is alive and appeared. And he says, I won't believe it. Unless I see it, I won't believe it. Eight days later, guess what? Jesus appears to Thomas with the disciples, reveals himself. And really, you would think John 20 is a wonderful place to kind of cut it off. To finish the book. Jesus appears and reveals himself to Thomas. Says do not believe. Do not disbelieve. But believe. He proclaims to Thomas. And Thomas's response is really. You would think a wonderful place. To bring this book to closure. He responds my Lord and my God. In fact in John it goes on in verse 31. Where it says. But these are written so that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ. The son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. Really a summary statement of what John is trying to accomplish throughout his entire gospel. You would think John 20 is a natural ending point for the gospel of John, but it's not. It's missing something. Specifically, it's missing John chapter 21. And as we look at this passage today, what we will see, sort of the, the big idea of this passage is that Jesus, the, the risen Christ, it is his top priority to ensure that his people are properly fed. As we consider John 29, 21, the, the big idea is that it is a top priority of the risen Christ to ensure that his people are properly fed. To say it another way, Jesus is the divine chef. And he has prepared a glorious meal. And he invites us to feast at his table free of charge. That's what we see in John 21. Not just do we see that, but what we, what, as we look at just this passage, these, verse, these 19 verses, is we also learn how Jesus does just that. How does he ensure his people are properly fed? Well, this section, verses 1 through 19, will break down into sort of two different stories. And oftentimes we read them as two different stories. But the way we're going to look at them this morning, as if it, and this follows a pattern that John does throughout his gospel, is that there is a sign, there is a miracle, and then there is an explanation. This is what the miracle meant. He performed this supernatural event, and this is the meaning of it. So we'll look at it in those two different things. We'll see the miracle. What is the miracle that he performs? And then we'll consider the meaning. What is the meaning of that miracle? Okay? And what this is going to do is it's going to shine a light and show us precisely how Jesus ensures that his people are properly fed. Okay? So first, let's consider the miracle. The miracle is the feeding of the disciples. Okay? Another sort of word that I would hang over the first 14 verses of John chapter 21 is just the word refreshment. And if you're taking notes, that would be a word I would write down. Verses 1 through 14, summarized in one word, it is refreshment. Specifically, refreshment from Jesus. Okay? 
Refreshment from Jesus is the focus of these first 14 verses. Jesus appears to his disciples a third time here in the Gospel of John since his resurrection. And the reason that he comes to them is clear. He's coming to them to refresh them. He's coming to his disciples as the resurrected Christ, the risen Christ, to feed them. That's what he's doing. So consider with me two things. First, as we consider the feeding of the disciples, think about the need to be fed. The need to be fed. Here the risen Christ reveals himself to seven disciples. They're by the Sea of Tiberias, which is also called the Sea of Galilee. This should not surprise us that the disciples find themselves back in Galilee. Mark tells us, or, or instructed them in chapter 16. Mark tells us that Jesus instructed them, actually not Jesus, but a man that they saw at the tomb, the empty tomb, instructed them to go to Galilee, that Jesus would go before them. These guys, after the resurrection, were to make their way to Galilee. So that's precisely where they are. They're in Galilee. And here on the sea, these professional fishermen, they're out all night, and they find that they have caught absolutely Nothing. They have no fish to show for their labor. Jesus appears to them on the shore and miraculously fills their nets. Oh, you were fishing on that side? Try the other side. They cast their nets, and their, fish, their nets are filled immediately with fish, so much so that they can barely haul it in. When they arrive on land, they find that Jesus already has a fire going for them and a hot breakfast. Go figure. Just waiting for these guys waiting to feed them. Though we're told that seven disciples are present and the first to be named is Peter, it's very clear as you read through this that Peter really comes to the surface as sort of a primary focal point of the passage. And as we consider Peter in this passage, you cannot read it and miss how active, how busy Peter is. Look at verse 3. He says, I'm going fishing. Peter, the leader, leads out. Everybody else follows him. In verse 7, when Jesus appears, it's Peter. Now, fishing back then, they would have been fishing naked. I don't necessarily know why, but it would have been their preference for fishing without clothes on. There's a reason, I'm sure, for it. He sees Jesus, understands who Jesus is, and it's Peter who throws on his outer garments, jumps in to the water, and swims towards Jesus. I'm sure Jesus was very thankful that he put on his outer garments as he came swimming towards him, okay? So Jesus, Peter's the one who's, who starts out to go fishing. Peter's the one who jumps in the water, who goes to, to meet Jesus upon discovery of who it is. In verse 11, it's Peter who hauls in um, the net ashore all by himself. Peter is full of activity in this passage. He's constantly on the move. As you read the story, it's no small thing that Peter is the center of activity here in the final chapter of John's Gospel. And it's clear that he is a man who's marked here by activity. Here's this man, Peter, one of the closest disciples to Jesus. In the hours leading up to Jesus' death, Peter completely abandoned his Savior, turned his back on him, and denied him not once, but three times. Peter finds himself suddenly back at the activity that had previously defined him. Peter is back to fishing after all, Peter was a fisherman. One can only imagine how Peter felt, having previously let down Jesus, having disappointed his Savior. I would imagine if I were in Peter's shoes, I would be asking myself, what do I do now? What place do I have in, on Jesus' team? 
What purpose? What direction do I have? I have failed Jesus, miserably failed him, and have done so publicly. What good does Jesus have with me now? So here's this man, Peter, who's lacking direction, who's lacking purpose, and his answer is to to fill the void he sees in his life with activity. What we see as we consider Peter in the final parts of John is that Peter was a restless soul in need of purpose and direction. He was in need of refreshment. Peter was restless. Now, restless is not, restlessness is not a thing that is unique to Peter, okay? Restlessness, th- restlessness is a common thing that plagues all of humanity and has done th- so from the very beginning. Responding to a lack of purpose, a lack of direction in life, oftentimes restlessness is a natural way to respond to a lack of direction in your life. Alexei de Tocqueville, many of you may uh, be familiar with him and his work, but he was a French aristocrat, aristocrat, sorry, aristocrat who in the early 1800s um, came over from, from France in 1831 and spent 10 months, really the, the, the mission of, the, the purpose of his mission was to do what, what he would have built as sort of a survey of the prison and penitentiary system here in the USA. And take that back and, and to see from, from France what they could learn from what is this new penitentiary system that's been developed here in the Americas. Um, but really when he got here, he did spend time visiting uh, prisons and the penitentiaries. But he spent most of his time doing extensive travels throughout America, making observations of the social and political life. Um, observations, and then he also made reflections. And his observations and reflections of Jacksonian America are found in his two-volume series called Democracy in America, which were published just five years after he was, uh, after he had went back to France, uh, 35 and then 40, he published them. What's amazing is how much of his description, it's such a, a useful work, such a useful volume in understanding our culture. It's not just a sort of a historical artifact into the window of 1830s America, but it also gives us an understanding of, of really honestly why things are the way they are in this country. Okay? One of the things that he discovers as he's over here, and it's a question that, that he asks and, and devotes some attention to in his work, is he asks this question, why are Americans so restless in the midst of their prosperity? Why are Americans so restless in the midst of their prosperity? In his book, he describes what he sees. In the United States, a man builds a house to which he spends, uh, in which to spend his old age, and he sells it before the roof is on. He plants a garden, and he lets it go just as the trees are coming into bearing. He brings a field into tillage and leaves other men to gather the crops. He embraces a profession and gives it up. He settles in a place which he soon afterwards leaves to carry his changeable longings elsewhere. As he considers how life just happens in America, he recognizes that there is a, a restlessness that is unique to Americans. He goes on and says this, At first sight, there's something surprising in this strange unrest of so many happy men. Restless in the midst of abundance. The spectacle itself, however, is as old as the world. The novelty is to see a whole people furnish an exemplification of it. So he recognizes two things. One is that this restlessness is as old as humanity. 
But two, what is so unique in America is that it is a land of abundance, and yet these people are still restless. It is a country that is experiencing prosperity on multiple levels, and yet those who are prospering find themselves unhappy. It's what David Myers calls in his more current work, the great American paradox. How can people in a land of so much abundance still find themselves so much in such a place of longing, a restless place? See, restlessness is not just something that Peter can identify with. It's something that we can identify with as a people. When we are, find ourselves in a place where we are longing direction and lacking purpose in our life, we can oftentimes give ourselves to filling up our calendar with activity as a means to provide direction for ourselves. That we can substitute, that we think activity is a worthy substitute of what Jesus actually is looking for, which is faithfulness. We can do it in our lives, and it can also be common to do that in the church. To fool ourselves into thinking that we are actually being faithful just by being more active. And it's precisely what Peter is doing. And the result is interesting. You'll see it in verse 3. All this activity, and what is it producing out on the sea in the nets? No fish. All that activity, yet he's catching absolutely nothing. And the same is true for us. That ultimately, our need, if it drives us to just filling our calendar with more activity, we will find ourselves in a similar place to Peter with nothing to show for it. So what is the answer to our restlessness? Well, what's the answer to Peter's restlessness? The answer is in verse 4. And I love the ESV. I prefer the ESV. I love how the NIV states it. states it like this. Verse 4 starts off in the NIV. Early in the morning, Jesus. What was the answer to Peter's restlessness? It was not activity. It was early in the morning, Jesus showed up. And what did Peter do? Whatever it took to find himself wrapped in the arms of his Savior. Jesus, Peter threw himself into Jesus' arms. The answer to Peter's restlessness, the answer to our restlessness, is not more activity. It is finding rest, purpose, and direction, ultimately through the intervention of Jesus himself. Jesus shows up on the scene. And Peter finds himself doing whatever it takes to get in Jesus' arms. The answer ultimately was running to Jesus. Sometimes, it's interesting, I don't know about you guys if you've noticed this, but oftentimes we can view in our culture today busyness or activity, almost, we wear it almost like a badge. It's almost like a virtue. Like, so many conversations are like this. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. How's it going great? It's just, it's really busy. Oh, I know. It's really busy. It's busy, 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 busy. And the more busy you are, it feels like the more virtuous you sort of present yourself to be. It's almost like busyness is a badge that we wear to validate our existence. Jesus is offering. Now, I don't know about you, but just time out. To me, that sounds exhausting. That sounds miserable. And my guess would be, for most of us who may tend towards that, 
Most of us would say it absolutely is miserable and exhausting. Jesus' alternative is radically, you guessed it, refreshing. He offers in his arms and in his arms alone the refreshment and the purpose and the direction that our restless souls long for. Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, this is precisely what Jesus does. He has demonstrated up to this point that he has come to serve these men. To come and, he's come to serve us in John 13, like Jeremy was reading earlier. He serves them by washing their feet, by serving the meal. And ultimately, he would go on and he would serve them and us by dying, excuse me, on the cross. In Mark 10, 45, his whole purpose in coming to earth is summarized by himself by saying, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't this remarkable that Jesus, the risen Christ, 40 days that he spends with his disciples, and this point he's driving home into their heads that he's concerned with their refreshment. It's all over this passage. Verse 5, children, do you have any fish? Verse 6, cast the net on the right side and the boat, will, you will find some. Verse 9, he built a charcoal fire with fish neatly laid on top, ready to serve. Verse 10, bring some fish, he says, that you've caught. So he's serving them fish that he's got prepared, and he's telling them, let's put some more on the fire. Verse 12, come, he says, have breakfast. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread, and he gave it to them, and so with the fish. All over these 14 verses, Jesus' primary concern is that these individuals, that his people are filled up with him, are refreshed, and that refreshment, he is very clear, can only come from him from doing things his way, not Peter's way. Throw the, throw the net on this side of the boat. When you listen to him and follow his word, the natural result is refreshment. That's what he offers his disciples in John 21, and it's what he's offering us today. This is precisely what St. Augustine meant when he said, you have made us for yourself. Oh Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So that's the miracle. He miraculously provides in their nets. He has this miraculous breakfast waiting for them on the shore. He's popping up all over the place. That's the miracle, his refreshment. What's the meaning? Well, we see this in the next couple of verses. And I don't have time to go into every aspect. There's a lot going on here, so I'll just focus in on, on a few things. Um, specifically how the disciples are now called by Jesus to feed his sheep, okay? So Jesus first, verses one through 14, fills up his disciples. Verses 15 through 19, he sends his disciples out to now fill up his sheep, okay? You see the progression. If the theme of verse one through 14 was refreshment from Jesus, and the theme of the section that follows, verses 15 through 19, is the restoration of Peter and the recommissioning of Peter, the other disciples fade sort of into the background, and sitting there around a charcoal fire, Jesus' focus turns specifically to Peter. This is, this is a beautiful, beautiful story of redemption. This is a beautiful story of restoration. Following breakfast, Jesus leans in. He can see Peter's vulnerability. He leans in and he asks Peter a question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He asks this question Three times. Three times he asked him, Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, if you're reading this, you might be asking yourself, 
What does he mean by these? What specifically? If I was Peter, I'd be like, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> do, do I love you more than what? What are the options? He's either saying, Jesus, uh, Peter, do you love me more than you love these disciples? He's in the midst of other men. Do you love me more than these disciples? Do you love me more than you love them? Could be asking it that way. Another way it could be phrased is, uh, Peter, do you, do you love me more than these disciples love me? It could be read that way as well. And then the third option would be, remember the scene, Peter, a fisherman, sitting there, fishing gear on the beach, fish on the fire. Jesus leans in and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? He could be referring specifically to the fish and basically asking Peter, hey, you thought you were going to go back to catching these but I'm sending you to catch something else. Do you love me more than you love your former identity as it was wrapped up in that of a fisherman? Do you love me more than that? I think biblically you can make a, a case for all three of those. Ultimately what Jesus is after, he's, got, he's like a surgeon who's got his scalpel out and he's making a decision to go directly to Peter's heart. And what he wants more than anything over during this breakfast time is he wants Peter's heart. He wants Peter's heart. He wants to know that Peter loves him, but he also wants to care for his heart. Three times he asks him this question. Three times Peter responds, yes. By the third time, Peter, as probably you or I would be, is growing frustrated. The text says that he is grieved. Why do you keep asking me this? You know I love you. Think about the intentionality that is played here at Jesus. He, he knows Peter. Two things that just, that just, for me, are helpful to see precisely what Jesus is doing here. First thing is, remember the context. He is sitting around a charcoal fire. The fact that John makes specific reference to that it's a charcoal fire is unusual. That level of detail is unique. So why would he include it? When you see unique details included in the text... You should circle it and say, why is that there? Well, it's interesting that he chose the word charcoal because it's one of only two times that this word is used in the entire New Testament. Both of them are used by John right here in this scene and back in John chapter 18, verse 18. When around a charcoal fire, guess what Peter's doing? Denying Jesus. He's denying Jesus around a charcoal fire fire in, the, in, in a public setting in the, the courtyard of the high priest Jesus is denying turning his back on sorry Peter is denying turning his back on Christ so just think about this scene the smell of the charcoal I mean immediately Peter has to be taken back to that place being reminded of what he has done Jesus is not afraid to wound Peter right now he's not afraid to do it it's going to come with a little pain Second thing that you notice is that there's the repetition three times. This repetition is deliberate. He asks them the question three times. It's the same question. Peter gives the same response. And Jesus' response to Peter's response is the same thing. The same charge. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Three different times. Well, how many times did Peter betray, betray Jesus? Three different times. Jesus is deliberately taking Peter back to the place where he drop the ball in a fashion that is going to go down for thousands of years. That's going to be written into history. His likely lowest point, realizing that he betrayed Jesus. 
And Jesus takes him right back to that place. I mean, just stop there for a second. I mean, many of us, I, my guess is just that if we did a quick survey of this room, this room is likely filled with regrets, with mistakes, failures. I would guess many of us, if we look back in our own lives, would see that. This is good news because you know what? That's true for Peter too, but guess what? Jesus isn't finished with him. Peter is not going to ultimately be defined by his regret, by his failure. And Jesus is going to see to it. Peter's taught that loving Jesus involves feeding his people. What a lesson. That's the lesson that Jesus is trying to display and teach these disciples this day. That loving him looks like properly feeding his people. Now just two things to point out about it. First, notice how Jesus, Jesus perfectly models this for his disciples. Before Jesus calls Peter to go and feed his disciples, Jesus ensures that Peter has food in his belly, right? And Jesus ensures that Peter knows precisely where that food came from. It came from Jesus. So Jesus is not sending his disciples, he's not sending Peter out to do anything that Jesus, this loving, gentle Savior, has not graciously demonstrated for them already. He's perfectly modeling what the great good shepherd looks like and what it requires to lead his people to ensure that they're fed. And how are they fed? They're fed by primarily through the word of God. And so as Peter goes forward now, he is, his charge as a shepherd, as a leader, as a, a servant in Christian ministry is to feed God's people through the spoken written word of God. That's how he does it. Jesus models for his disciples precisely what their priorities should be. Second thing, notice this. Jesus doesn't, and I love this, just love this, this reality. Jesus does not expect us to give what we have not already received. Jesus does not expect us to go out and to give what we have not already received. So the idea is that Peter is sitting around a table feasting with Jesus before he is sent to go and do for Jesus. And that's precisely what Christian service looks like. It starts first by feeding ourselves by falling into the arms of Jesus, by receiving from Jesus. By, we, we can't go and do for him until we have sat with him. That's the truth of Christian ministry. We've talked about it on staff the uh, last couple of weeks quite a bit. It's, to me, it is constantly... Because if you get this wrong, you can begin to find your identity and what you do for Jesus rather than what Jesus has done for you. And that would render you pretty useless in ministry if you think your primary identity is what you do for Jesus. It's going to send you in a world of frustration and disappointment, okay? We've talked about it on staff, and the way we've said it is that it is so good and such a helpful reminder in the book of Matthew that 17 chapters, we talk a lot about the Great Commission, that Jesus sends out the disciples, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It says this in Matthew 28. But 17 chapters before Jesus sends out his disciples, 
in Matthew 11. Guess what he says? Before he says, go and make disciples, do you know what he says 17 chapters before that in Matthew 11? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Long before Jesus sends them out to go and do, he welcomes them in to come and be with Jesus. And you must, all, if you're going to serve in ministry in any capacity, you must always remember those two things. What grace of our Lord Jesus, that he's concerned with our filling. In fact, he's not just concerned with our filling, but this is a vital part of his plan for spreading his gospel and making disciples around the entire globe, is by filling disciples up and then sending them out. And as we consider what God is calling us to as a church, it ought to look very similar to that. It ought to look like there's a priority on our refreshment, on our learning from Christ, on our receiving from Christ. That ought to be a priority. And it does not run against the activity of going out and telling others about Jesus. In fact, it's the fuel that provides the energy so that we can have an effective ministry. Both of those, you don't have to choose one or the other. As followers of Jesus, we do both of those things. We sit at his table and feast. And we go and proclaim. So quickly in closing, two points of application. First is come and feast. You know, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, first and foremost, we are so glad that you're here. Um, but this is where Peter's spiritual journey starts. It starts by coming to Jesus. And the way that, Peer, that Peter's journey begins, at least in John 21, is he recognizes that he has a need. That he needs to be refreshed. Refreshment is of no value to you if you don't recognize you need it. You won't seek it out. And the Bible gives us this wonderful promise in James chapter 4 that if we draw near to him, guess what he does for us? Draws near to us. You can't lose. If you recognize here this morning, you're, maybe you say to yourself, listen, you recognize I'm restless. I've been looking for meaning, for purpose, for direction, for life in all the wrong places. And Jesus' invitation to you this morning is to come and feast. The divine chef has prepared a glorious meal. He welcomes you to his table and to feast on a meal that's already been paid for by him. My goodness, that's great news. Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So when you come to Jesus, he's able to refresh you in a way that nothing else in this world can possibly do. Secondly, come and feast. That's exhortation towards you who may not be a follower of Jesus. If you are not, just would say, what better time to throw yourself into the arms of Jesus? If you want to learn how to do that, I would be more than happy to meet with you afterwards. If you're here today and you haven't been following Jesus, this is the time of year, oftentimes, where if you're like me, your Bible reading plan can be like, whoopsie-daisy, was supposed to be in, you know, maybe 1 Samuel by now, but I'm in Joshua, you know? And if you're like me, oftentimes you can think to yourself, okay, well, I'll have to start again January 1 to get back on track, right? It's gone off the rails, I'll just wait another, you know, eight months or whatever, and then we'll, we'll kind of clean things up in January, okay? If we're listening to what Jesus is saying to us this morning, then I would say, no, you don't have to wait. Jesus' invitation is constantly there. He doesn't sit Peter down and say, Peter, you know, you did this, you did that. I'm really disappointed. I'm not so sure that you're ready for this. Jesus' invitation is open. 
He doesn't, you, you know, my image, and talking about this, I think with you, Aiden, maybe this week, that sometimes I can think that if I've fallen off the rails where prayer or Bible reading is concerned, that as I get back in, I can think that Jesus is sitting there saying, hmm, I hear you, but man, you haven't been really, this has not been a good week for you. You've not been in your word. You've not been on your knees. I'm, are you sure you really want to do this? Like, Jesus is not acting like that, right? Every time we approach him through his word in prayer, he is there. He draws, the Bible says, near to us. You don't have to wait till January 1 to do it. Do it now. Secondly, application would just encourage you to, the, the, the one, so what does it look like for you to feast? What does it look like for you to feed on God's word? What does that look like for you now? Secondly, I would just encourage you to, so if the two applications are go and feast, what does your Bible reading plan look like? Where do you need to pick back up at? Okay? Who are you reading the Bible with that can help keep you accountable? Those are all good questions that can help you think about it. Even corporately, when we come on a Sunday morning, the expectation should always be for everybody to come and feast. The Bible's going to be open. I should come expecting to hear God's word proclaimed. It's, a, it's an invitation when we walk through those doors to feast every week. The other application is if we come and feast, we also want to go and feed. This is what the core of what we are called to do in service for Jesus, is to, to take what we have been refreshed with and then to turn to those around us and to feed others as well. Jesus doesn't expect us to do it on an empty tank. He fills us up, and he doesn't expect that tank to just keep filling up. There's got to be an outlet somewhere for it. Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep. And this is at the core of Christian ministry, is feeding the sheep. And this is something anybody can do. So one thing that we love to do is, there's this method of Bible study we've learned a couple years ago. It's called Discovery Bible Method, and many of you may be familiar with it. But one of the key aspects in studying the Bible that it requires you to do every time you read the Bible is to recognize, after you recognize what God's Word is saying and what you've learned from it, the, one of the last steps is to now think through, okay, who in your life needs to hear what you just learned? It's the last step of this method. And it's a great, I mean, you don't have to do a method. Just write that down at the end of your time with God's, in God's Word. That should be a good way that you finish every time that you open up God's Word. Even the way you leave these doors today. Having heard from John 21, the question you should be asking is, who in my life needs to hear this Word? I've been filled up. Now i got to go and fill up others. Who is that person? Okay? So this is an invitation not just for us to come and feast, but to also participate in God's global mandate, his mission that he has called the church to. And anyone is invited and gets to participate in that. All right, church, I'm going to go ahead and close us in prayer. Father God, Lord, thank you so much um, for your word this morning. Thank you for just the reality that you are such a kind and gentle Savior who knows us, who knows your sheep and knows precisely what it is that we need. And so as we consider just steps of obedience to your word this morning, as we consider what it looks like to be in your word and to proclaim your word, Lord, I pray that you would um, strengthen us with courage, with boldness to, um, to do precisely what your word has called us to do. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.